Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unmasked Podcast. Uh, today, we've got a very, very special guest, uh, Christina Pusha, Ron DeSantis' press secretary. And uh, it's, I thought it'd be a really interesting conversation to hear what she has to say about some policy issues and, and just get her thoughts on, on what's going on with the administration. And uh, so thank you so much for doing this, Christina. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah. So my first question for you is just kind of a general one. Like, what, what was your background and how did you come to get involved in speaking out about COVID policy and, and wind up working for Governor DeSantis? Well, um, I've always been a conservative, always been into politics, worked for um, some different conservative organizations. But for the last few years before um, coming to Florida, I was an international political consultant. So I worked in Ukraine, in the country of Georgia, post-Soviet countries, um, and in Washington, D.C. But, um, you know, I I think when COVID hit um, early 2020, I was actually overseas for my job. I was in the country of Georgia. Um, they did not have flights out. I mean, for months. So I was pretty much stuck there for almost the entire year of 2020. And I think what my wake up call was and why I realized very early on that this is not what we're being told it is, um, was because Georgia is a small country. I happened to live in a neighborhood where a lot of politicians lived, um, like local politicians. And they, um, and wealthy people too. I mean, usually that's one and the same thing there. Um, and during the lockdown, we had a hard lockdown um, with a curfew. You couldn't go out after nine o'clock. You couldn't drive unless you had a special permit if you were like a doctor or something like that. Um, or so they said. But in my neighborhood, I was seeing politicians and just generally wealthy, well-connected people flouting all the rules, restrictions, never wearing masks, not obeying the curfew, you know, just basically living their life however they wanted. So I thought to myself, you know, if this virus is really so scary and such a risk to everyone, why aren't they afraid of it? And so mm -hmm. that kind of made me think this is all, um, you know, nonsense. Like that, and you know, the same type of thing was happening in America and in other countries. But um, I think when you're in a very small country where everyone knows each other, um, it's kind of amplified a bit. Mm -hmm. and we had such a hard lockdown seeing that contrast with just how like the politicians and the powerful people were living versus how regular people were living it was really um just eye-opening so since april 2020 i'd say um i have been very outspoken against lockdowns covid restrictions and mandates of all kinds um and obviously governor DeSantis was a leading the leading voice and one of the earliest voices in terms of like elected officials to be really speaking out against this and rather speaking out for the facts, looking for the data, making it clear, you know, that this is not the same type of risk to everyone, um, that it's maybe more widespread than we thought that it's going to be around indefinitely. Basically, it's not something that we can just lock down hard and get rid of. Um, and so I had it in my mind, like, I, I you know, I'd love to um, if I ever go back into U.S. politics, I'd love to work for him or somebody like him. Um, that was not really a plan until after the November election, um, November 2020. I came back to the USA and for many reasons, I was just worried about the direction of the country. Um, wrote a couple of articles in a conservative magazine um, early last year about COVID lockdowns in Florida, obviously 
praising what Governor DeSantis had done and, and the stand that he'd taken for science, for data, for facts, um, and against the hysteria. And so that's, to make a, a long story short, I mean, probably could have been shorter. That's how I got in touch with, um, with his team. And that's how I ended up in Florida. Interesting. That's great. Uh, and then, yeah, you hit the nail on the head as far as uh, the governor following all this, the actual science, not the science as, uh, as we refer to it. Uh, so kind of relatedly, uh, one of the most important issues that for people across the country that live in, in areas like California, I, ca- I call them the anti-science states, is schools. And obviously the DeSantis administration has like led the country in opening schools, keeping them open, fighting for choice with masking and, and everything else. So what do you think led them to understand how important schools were so quickly and how important keeping normal schooling going has been? Well, I think it's something that that is kind of self-evident. Like, I mean, everyone realized, I think, from day one that school is important for kids, not only in terms of learning, but social development, um, emotional and mental health. And in many cases, you know, when you're talking about kids from low income families, from disadvantaged background, school is the place where they get their meals for the day, for example. Um, School is a place it's it's a place that's safe for them versus like maybe their home life. And so there are so many different factors that I don't think anyone could ever seriously argue that kids don't need to be in school, period. Um, The question was whether COVID is that dangerous to kids that you know, taking all of those downsides and all of those risks into consideration that it's still better to close schools. What's interesting is, again, I told you I lived in a country with a hard lockdown that lasted until June 2020, and then it was a free-for-all, basically. But even though we had that lockdown and we were very much restricted in what we could do, schools were the first thing really to reopen. I mean, besides, like, you know... um, as I said, for wealthy people, everything was open. But but for the general public, schools were the first thing to reopen before bars and all of that. And that's because I think in Europe um, and probably most of the world, it is kind of acknowledged that, openly acknowledged that um, kids need to be in school and that adults can protect themselves. Kids are at very low risk of the virus in the first place. So um, that was interesting to see. Now, the only reason why I think in some states, in the um, anti-science states, as you called it, I agree with you, by the way, the <laughs> reason why we see, uh, and these anti-science states and cities have become outliers worldwide, why we see these prolonged school closures, like Flint, Michigan, recently saying that we don't know when school is going to come back, like it's going to be indefinitely remote. I mean, come on, that doesn't happen in a country as poor as Georgia, where the schools are really, really just, I mean... I know Flint is not a wealthy district, but but a third world country can do it. Um, you know why why it doesn't happen in the science anti science states is because of the teachers unions and because of these political influence that they have over the Democratic Party. Notice how in no conservative run district do you see these prolonged school closures. In August 2020, Governor DeSantis opened every school public school in Florida um, because with political will you can do that. Now, um, with political will, unfortunately, when you when Democrats have control, they they do the opposite, which is what we're seeing right now in Flint, Michigan, and in some other very blue parts of the country. Um, but Governor DeSantis was attacked for opening schools. I mean, really, from all sides. In Miami, the teachers' unions 
in summer 2020 would protest by like driving hearses down the road um, and like acting, yeah. writing their obituaries and publishing them like very manipulative and very absurd. But like, you know, some people bought into it because of the hysteria and polling was done um, by supposed conservative Frank Luntz. He's not. But anyway, he did a poll saying that like the majority of Floridians don't want schools to open. They don't think it's safe. Well, that's because they have been brainwashed basically, and they've been manipulated. And so Governor DeSantis never like pays attention to polls. He just knew that that's the right thing to do is to keep schools open. Kids are at low risk. He's a dad of three young kids himself. So he understands, I think, um, more than maybe like Randy Weingarten or some of these teachers union leaders. He personally understands like that this is good for kids. Keeping them inside lockdown is terrible for kids. Um, and you know, he so he opened it regardless of all of these um, antics by the teachers unions, by Democrats. They sued the state of Florida, by the way, um, teachers unions. And I think Nikki Freed um, joined the lawsuit. At least she vocally supported it. Um, that's his Democratic gubernatorial opponent, one of them. Um, and so now, though, that has all been memory hold. People are pretending like Democrat politicians in Florida are pretending that they've supported schools being open all along because the governor opened them. This like sickness and death and tragedy and chaos that was predicted, it never materialized. Um, and so now, obviously, we see so many people from those anti-science states, particularly the East Coast, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, they're moving down. Parents with young kids are enrolling their kids in school in Florida because they want their kids to have a normal childhood, um, you know, and not be worried that every flu season the school is going to close or that their kids are going to have to cover their faces all day um, forever, which, I mean, it's a possibility in some places, unfortunately. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I think it was just a matter of political will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll forget that they supported school closures and that it, this never would have happened kids would not have been in school for another year if not for governor DeSantis standing up and saying enough like we're opening yeah absolutely and so that's kind of you, you might have already answered this in part but one of the, the my next question for you is kind of related you know and there's been a lot it seems like there's been a number of local districts in florida and in jurisdictions that have basically like fought the administration in terms of masking and, and even like vaccine mandates and stuff. And so, you know, why do you think that there are these local jurisdictions that are seeing, you know, now it's, it's obvious school closures are one of the biggest mistakes that anybody made. And, and so he's, he was proven right on that. You know, maybe you give him the benefit of the doubt that he's actually been aware of, of good COVID make, you know, COVID policy decisions. Why are there these districts fighting back against, you know, the, the mask mandates in schools and, and vaccine mandates for employees, things like that? Well, we have 67 school districts in Florida, like one for each county, right? Um, during the beginning of this current school year, so back in the August, September 2021, when Delta was surging in the South, including in Florida, um, school opened as expected. I mean, it always opens after summer vacation at the same time. And out of those 67 school districts, I believe it was 10 at the most that said they're going to have a mask mandate in violation of the governor's executive order. He had issued executive order in July saying no mask mandates. Masking a kid should be the parent's choice. Um, obviously, many parents will choose not to because they don't see any benefit of it and they do feel that it harms their kid. Um, 
so anyway, 10 school districts, but those 10 were pretty big because um, they included large cities and obviously they're run by Democrats. So that shows you, I mean, probably why masking became such a political issue. It became almost like a talisman um, for Democrats, a virtue signal. And so this, these areas were like Miami, Broward, Orlando, um, you know, all with Democrat mayors. So um, why that happened, I mean, I guess the best way I can describe it is it's it's all politics. And it's unfortunate because these policies, public health, education, like these types of things shouldn't be politically driven. I don't think ever um, they should be data driven. But that obviously wasn't the case. So anyway, these districts, those 10 districts opened with mask mandates and then the other ones were mask optional. Um, and we got to observe for the first couple months of the school year how cases, number one, COVID cases in all age groups, including pediatric, they fell dramatically for the first two months of the school year. Um, they fell like 90, 95%. Um, so opening schools with no masks in most of the state did not contribute to a surge or a rise in cases at all. It was the opposite, if anything. Um, number two, we got to compare the rate of decline in COVID cases among pediatric age groups, so under 18. Um, we got to compare the 10 districts with mask mandates versus those districts that didn't have mask mandates. Obviously, we didn't design it this way because we didn't want any districts to have mask mandates, but some of them were disobeying the law for some time. Um, and so we did observe like how the COVID rates fell the rate at which they fell um, in terms of like whether the district had a mask mandate or not, it made no difference. They fell mm -hmm. at the same rate. And so that should also, I mean, it was kind of a unique situation in Florida. And I think, you know, we did publish this. We did make it clear to any reporter who asked about it. Um, but, you know, nobody, most people in the mainstream media, at least, they didn't seem to want to dig into that. Um, it's almost like they would like bury their heads in the sand or close <laughs> their ears when we try to talk about that or when our Surgeon General would talk about it. But but that was the case. And then also what the governor did in September after appointing our new and awesome Surgeon General, Dr. Latipo, um, he did basically ended healthy quarantine. What that means is if a kid is exposed to COVID in school, meaning like they pass somebody in the hallway who later tests positive, like they don't have to quarantine. It used to be that in some of these districts, they would um, quarantine a whole class if one person tested positive. Um, and that would be very disruptive. And that really didn't have any effect on like cases, but um, but it did sure. disrupt kids' education. So that was, again, hysteria about the mask mandates, hysteria about that all from the media from Democrats, but now they accept it. Like it's normal in Florida for kids to go to school without masks. You just have to get through that couple of months of resistance and then people realize it's okay. And then they don't wanna go back to the, you know, these, all these protocols and masking and stuff. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I, I think a lot of people in, in areas like California and Illinois and others, it's almost like they've forgotten what normalcy is supposed to look like. And it's right. uh, it's pretty, pretty painful. Um, so you brought up some stuff in there that I think it was kind of a good a lot of really good points. But one thing that was uh, I'm confused about a little bit. I mean, I'm not too confused, but I want to get your sense on it as well. 
you would think that the success that Florida has shown in managing COVID, obviously with schools and the school masking, there's been no significant impact. You know, when you look at age adjusted numbers, Florida's unexceptional. It's right in the middle of the pack. You know, there were fewer excess deaths than California during the winter in 2020, 2021. So you would think that this would be good news showing we don't have to destroy society to live with COVID. But the media coverage, the reaction from people seems to be like trying to convince themselves that Florida has been a disaster. Like, I don't understand. Should this should be good news. So, you know, what is that? What, what's the explanation for why people can't accept good news? Look, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's something I've noticed really from from the beginning of this pandemic, from the time Florida started to open up and Governor DeSantis became the leading opponent of lockdowns and mandates. Um, it's almost like the mainstream media wants Florida to fail. And they want, it's horrible to say this, but it's like they want our death rate to be higher um, so that they can be proven right. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is a really sad commentary on the state of, of our country right now and how divided we are. But I also think it's it's psychotic a little bit. Like um, people are, a lot of people are addicted to fear. Um, they're addicted to, to being worried. And again, I, I go back to my experience for the first year of the pandemic in a former Soviet country where there's been three wars, um, I mean, in, in my lifetime. Um, so everyone there has seen war on their country's territory. A lot of them are internal refugees. Um, they've seen a lot of violence. They've seen chaos. They've seen things that most Americans have never seen. And so there was more of an interest, I think, there. Like I said, there was the hard lockdown and they were done. Um, and they're they they were ready to get back to normal because like they just weren't as easily scared by whatever the media is telling them and here i feel like a lot of americans are very very easily manipulated maybe because we don't have that immunization i guess from like in the soviet union there was all kinds of propaganda and it was like obvious to everyone after a time but here we're just kind of getting started with that. And so maybe a lot of Americans don't realize how much the experts are lying to them and how much the media lies to them. For example, um, to your point, Florida has, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories about Florida, but the biggest one is like that Florida is hiding its real death count, which mm -hmm. is total nonsense. And like, you know how COVID deaths are counted and how it involves 67 counties, 60, like all kinds of medical examiners. Each county has its own health department. And so you can't have these hundreds of people from all over the state, like would have to be colluding to hide deaths and that would never happen. Um, it's not just something that like a governor or a civil servant can do individually. Um, it's ridiculous. But this whole conspiracy theory played out um, throughout 2020 um, mostly with the Rebecca Jones case, but then there's been others who have kind of tried to build on it. And they were proven wrong, um, conclusively, I think, that this whole conspiracy theory has been debunked. But, and they don't really talk about Rebecca Jones or this conspiracy theory on MSNBC or CNN anymore. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, they never really, they also never admitted that they were wrong. So they never stood up and said, we have to issue a correction or retract this story or followed up and said, wait a minute, actually this person was lying to us. Like they just kind of moved on. It's like hit and run journalism. So now they've created this narrative um, that their followers, I mean, their viewers will, will always kind of think there's something wrong with Florida's numbers, but they can't explain to you what it is, but just that it's wrong. And a lot of people have died and Florida actually has the highest death rate, but they don't know how impossible that is like to hide something like that. But um, 
but you know, so this is like the kind of pathology that we've seen. It's because I think also a lot of people and particularly a lot of politicians in states like California and New York, they can't admit that they've been so wrong for so long. And they can't admit to themselves that they've given up so much of their lives or they've, or in the case of politicians, like they've taken away so much from their constituents and from their communities. They've forced people to sacrifice so much and people themselves have sacrificed so much because they believe in all of this. They can't admit that they were wrong because at this point it's too painful. Then you admitted that like all of your sacrifices were for nothing. It didn't make a difference. And I can tell yeah. you it, it didn't. I mean, in California, it did not make a difference. None of the stuff that they did, but they can't admit that to themselves because it's like painful and you can understand why I think, because um, imagine if you were, if you gave up your life for two years pretty much and you changed everything that you do and you didn't see your loved ones and your kids didn't go to school and, or like they're wearing masks every day for eight hours. You can't admit that it was for nothing because that would make you a bad person or it would mean that, um, that you were easily misled in, in a very serious way. And that's what's happened. But like people can't, a lot of people cannot come to terms with that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's a, a relatedly, and I, I wanted to ask you about this uh, because it seems like you spend so much of your time kind of debunking these conspiracy theories and the misinformation from you know Rebecca Jones and Nikki Freed and, and other ones. So why does Florida attract so many of these people? And, you know, did you expect that it would take so much of your time to, to debunk all this stuff? You know, why do they get so much attention? Well, again, I think, as you said, it's related to your question that you just asked me, which is um, basically, why do people want Florida to fail? Mm -hmm. So I explained that. And now I think all these conspiracy theories come up because people, a lot of people want Florida to fail, or rather like deep down, they need Florida to fail because they need to be proven right. Because if they're proven wrong, it means that they sacrificed for nothing. It means they destroyed their community, politicians destroyed their communities for nothing kids' educations were destroyed for nothing. Kids' mental health was destroyed for nothing. Small businesses in California, one in four, were destroyed for nothing. Um, you know, people's entire lives were destroyed for nothing. And so, like, it is so hard to admit that. Yeah. It, whether you're a politician or whether you're just a person who's bought into it for so long. Um, it, no matter what data you see, no matter what evidence you see, even when you see Eric Swalwell or... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez going on vacation in Florida without masks and having a great time, you can't wrap your mind around the fact that like Florida is okay and it's safe. Um, so you have to think like, like that's how people believe in conspiracy theories in general. Like regardless of what the theory is about, it, it, it fits your priors and it's the only explanation for something that otherwise you can't accept the truth. So you have to accept this different explanation, even though there's no evidence for it, because it's, it's more comfortable than accepting the truth. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you about the media as well. Uh, obviously, you, you know, you can, you've mixed it up with, with some of the media members down there too. Um, one of the things that I thought was especially offensive was the trying to label governor Santos as like an anti-vaxxer. It, it, it's just, They've completely memory hold it. You know, he did everything he could to get seniors vaccinated early on, partnered with businesses to make it as easy as possible to get access. And he did it all without coercion and mandates and got Florida, you know, well above average vaccination yeah. rates, especially among the elderly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is it possible to salvage the media at this point or if politics has completely taken it over? Well, it's funny you should ask that because <laughs> back in April of 2021, 
Um, so during the time when Governor DeSantis was doing a pro like vaccine promotion event almost every day in different parts of the state, I think he did more than 50 of those press conferences in total, all during um, like the first quarter of 2020. So in April, or sorry, 2021, April, um, 60 Minutes came out with that investigation claiming that Governor DeSantis was like, somehow in a corruption scheme with Publix, the supermarket chain that's everywhere in Florida. Um, and that's why Publix was distributing vaccines to elderly people. And then NBC News said that Governor DeSantis is vaccinating Holocaust survivors and Bay of Pigs veterans. So these are people that are more than 85 years old um, because Cubans and Jews are important political blocks in Florida. Like, how absurd is this? I mean, yeah. these are people who are in the most, these 85 plus year old Holocaust survivors, Bay of Pigs veterans, or really anyone in that age group is going to be among the most vulnerable to actual serious complications from COVID. So that's why they're prioritized for vaccines. So to say that this is like some political ploy, I mean, it's absurd, right? And it's offensive, frankly, but that's what the media was saying. So they were, when he was promoting vaccines every single day, they were attacking him for that. They were calling him corrupt. They were saying he's pandering to these different um, ethnic groups. They were doing all this kind of stuff um, to discredit him and to take the focus away from like, hey, here's what the governor is saying. He wants people to get vaccinated, seniors first, because um, they seniors happen to be at higher risk. But again, he always made it clear that even no matter how old you are, no matter what um, your situation is, Vaccination has to be a free choice. It cannot be coerced um, because it's not ethical to violate somebody's bodily autonomy. People should choose what they put into their body, right? And I think that's very basic. Most people, especially most seniors, definitely wanted the vaccine. Um, they chose to take it, but some didn't, um, even in the very beginning. And that was fine. I mean, there was never any, like, um, there was never an indication that like anyone from state government would be pushing it on people. We just wanted to make everyone, um, give everyone the ability to access it if they wanted it and give them accurate information. So like, um, yeah, I think it's just so ironic that now, as you said, it's been memory hold all that he did, not only to promote the vaccine, but also, you know, focusing on seniors when, by the way, the CDC um, guidance when the vaccine first came out in December 2020, they were saying um, that frontline workers should be prioritized above 65 and older, which is like something that the governor DeSantis didn't think it made sense because he reads the um, studies, he reads the research, he, he knows what the death rate is for different age groups. And he was like, no, we're going to do 65 plus. That's going to be the priority. Um, and then we'll expand it to other age groups when we get more vaccine doses. And so that's what he did. Now, the CDC then changed its guidance to come in line with Florida's because they saw that it was being done the right way, even though at first they were like screeching about equity um, and all of this kind of stuff. But but really, at the end of the day, they saw that we're following science here. Um, and they did. But again, they always do this. They always attack DeSantis for something. Then they change their policy to copy him, but never give him credit. And he doesn't do it for credit. You know, he doesn't expect to get credit from the media. Um, but it's just ironic that they always they they act like they knew all along that like they should be giving vaccines to seniors first and seniors are at the highest risk and kids should be in school and mass mandates don't work and all of this kind of stuff. 
but totally memory hold the fact that DeSantis has been way ahead of the curve on all of these and he's been mercilessly attacked on all of these before it becomes like commonly accepted truth. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so kind of relatedly, there was a uh, I, I want to say maybe this is like a week and a half ago or so you had tweeted out an AP reporter who claimed that he reached out for comment, didn't get a response. And then you showed the email that he ignored. Yep. So it, it's like, how do they get away with this kind of, you know, this is a, this is the AP. This isn't, a, you know, a, a low rent kind of reporting district here. This is one of the best. How do they get away with that kind of lazy, inaccurate reporting? Well, until very recently, until social media became a thing, I think the media, like traditional media, like the AP, they were really the gatekeepers and the arbiters of, of truth, at least as people understood it. Um, because there wasn't really a way that an average person could just like push back um, and get a big enough audience to expose the falsehoods of their narratives. And they have been pushing false narratives for a very long time. Um, it's nothing new, didn't start with COVID obviously, but, um, but now with Twitter being what it is and being as widespread as it is, um, I and many other people, including you, I mean, we've been able to use this platform to push back with the facts and to be transparent and to make it clear to, you know, the same people who read the AP can read our Twitter accounts and they can make up their own minds. And that's a very different thing. I mean, reporters are not used to that. So that's why they've gotten more um, into censorship, I think. Like they're openly calling for censorship now and that's kind of a new thing. It was always taboo, I feel like in America to be calling for censorship of your opponents, but now it's it's like completely normalized. So for example, that AP um, reporter in Florida, the same one who you just mentioned in, in a different case a few months ago, um, he wrote a story implying that Governor DeSantis is making money off of Regeneron monoclonal antibody therapy, which was absurd. I mean, absolutely no truth to that story. It was impossible. The way that he explained it was like it couldn't have worked. It was based on um, a total lie. So I pushed back on it on Twitter and I called him out and I was like, this is a lie. You have no evidence for this. And um, your article is absurd and it's it's disinformation. And a lot of people then started um, criticizing this reporter and his article and tagging him on Twitter, tagging the editor, tagging AP. Um, and it became like a firestorm of pushback, well-deserved pushback, because like if you just make up a lie, like accusing somebody of corruption, but not only that, it wasn't only about DeSantis. It was like you're discrediting a life-saving treatment that could actually help people avoid hospitalization and death from COVID but you're pretending it's a scam to make money. Like it's, um, you know, it's, it's unconscionable, this kind of stuff. It actually does hurt people. So um, the pushback I think was warranted. I stand by everything I said to him um, and to the AP. But what happened was after a day of this, the AP CEO wrote a letter to Governor DeSantis, published it as an open letter, published an article in the AP about it saying that he should fire me basically because I harassed a reporter. Then Twitter suspended my account for 12 hours and basically i knew if i tweet at this guy again like i'm gonna get permanently suspended so what does that mean it means that big tech and um news outlets like the ap traditional media outlets are kind of colluding to censor dissent and to push whatever narratives they want to push whether or not they're factually true and when they're proven wrong they censor the people who prove them wrong. 
They censor the people who try to get the facts out there and make them look bad. And why do they do this? Because they can't win in the marketplace of ideas. They can't win in a head-to-head -head argument with me, for example, about this subject. Like they, they aren't able to argue with me um, because they don't have facts on their side. And so censorship is the only, it's the last resort for them. And that's why it's become so popular. And obviously my example was, was very, um, it was small compared to like some of the people who have been deplatformed completely um and you know who have been like the spotify issue with joe rogan how they've been you know trying to get spotify to pull them off the platform like this kind of stuff um never in history have the people doing the censorship been on the right side of history never um yeah. but now they think that they are and they always think they are i mean i'm sure like you know in the Soviet Union, the communists thought they were on the right side of history, the vanguard, I mean, they genuinely did. Now we see that they were not. And so I'm kind of seeing the same type of mentality from these people. And I see big tech and corporate media as kind of fused to push a narrative and they fuse with like the CDC and um, other government agents, like federal agencies to do that as well, um, in a way that you would see in the Soviet Union with state media. They didn't have yeah. big tech back then, but this is just another enforcement arm of it. But it's also a way to push back, as I said. So, um, you know, as long as we're allowed on Twitter, like, <laughs> right. Censorship was actually something I wanted to ask you about, too. I, I know it's been an important issue for the governor. And so, you know, what do you think the future might hold as far? You know, what can we do? What can any of us do or what can he do as far as trying to stop the increased push for more censorship? And, and like you say, with combinations of the media and the tech companies. Gosh, I wish there was a simple answer to that question. Um, I do think obviously, you know, the, the federal government regulates this, right? So they have to drop the pretense that these are neutral platforms. The only reason that these social media companies, big tech companies are able to function in the way that they do and to have this opaque, like non-transparent way of deplatforming and shadow banning people, it's because um, they are operating under Section 230, which federally means um, like it requires them to be neutral platforms for free speech. And that's what they always claim to be. Now they've dropped that pretense recently. I mean, it, it kind of coincided with COVID. Um, and so now I think that needs to be changed. Now, the issue, though, is, you know, we always hear about get rid of Section 230 and break up big tech as though that's going to fix the problem. No, that's only the first step. And it might even make the problem worse if you don't have a robust framework in place um, that requires, for example, what Governor DeSantis would want to see and what I think um, most people who care about free speech would want to see is like transparency from these big tech companies about how they decide to shadow ban or deplatform somebody. What exactly are the guidelines? What are the rules that you need to follow in order to be allowed on that platform? And the rules need to be applied equally to everyone, regardless of political ideology. So like if there's a rule against making death threats to people, fine. Like that means no matter who makes the threat to anyone, they can be deplatformed. But um, it shouldn't be enforced selectively. And that's what we see happening right now is just the selective enforcement with no clarity about the rules. And so that's one thing to begin with. Um, and there's a lot more that can be done. But I think it's also just a cultural shift um, that we are um, working towards. And I think that's coming. Um, a cultural shift away from 
you know, this deference to the elite consensus. I think now in the last few months, we've seen how wrong the elites, I mean, most Americans have seen how wrong the elites were on so many things. Like CDC guidance is changing so drastically. We're seeing, you know, um, all of these things like the lab leak theory, for example, which was a conspiracy theory and now it's considered to be like very likely. All of these things um, that were considered misinformation are becoming acknowledged as the truth. And so I think the more that this happens, the less Americans will support censorship anymore um, because they will see that the experts are not always right, that the censors are not always right, that nobody's the arbiter of truth, that the fact checkers are not always checking facts. And like the more they do this, the more they overplay their hand, I think the media and big tech, um, the more people wake up to reality and start turning against um, censorship. For example, August 2021, in the height of the Delta surge in Florida, Governor DeSantis said at a press conference that um, COVID is seasonal. It's a seasonal virus and it ebbs and flows throughout the year. And, and summer happens to be a COVID season for Florida. Washington Post like seized on that and wrote a headline that Governor DeSantis falsely claims that that it's COVID season and COVID is seasonal. Now today, a few months later, Washington Post, same newspaper, they write a headline saying that actually it appears COVID is seasonal. Like they just admitted, <laughs> they never went back and either apologized to us or changed their false headline about DeSantis because they don't do that. But they do admit when like there's so much evidence they can't really deny it anymore. And I don't know what prompted them to admit this today, but but it happened. And that's not the first time something like that has happened. It's 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 crazy. I, as somebody I've I've had a fact check on me as well. It was it was inaccurate. And I <laughs> the, the, the little Twitter thread about it. It's it's so uh, it was a crazy experience. But it's, uh, you know, it's one of the, the, the most important issues, I think, is, is like you said, is breaking down the trust in all of this, these people that they've done it themselves, you know, they, they've, they've right. overplayed their hand. Um, and they keep making these same mistakes. And, and I, you know, that's what I've been trying to do. And I'm sure and obviously you've been trying to do as well as point out, you know, look, this is what these people said before. And they never go back and update it when they're proven wrong. They just kind of, you know, move past it like it never happened. Right. Uh, but that's why we take screenshots. We keep the receipts and yeah. we show them. Like today, you know, I put up side by side. Hey, here's what you said a month, like a few months ago, Washington Post. Here's what you said today. Because now we can hold them accountable. I think you do a great job of that, too. Well, thank you. The the, the, the Defiant L's uh, Twitter account was was all over that Washington Post yeah. story, too. And it, it it's like one of my favorite accounts on the Internet. It's amazing. Uh, I just had a couple more quick questions for you. And one's kind of unrelated to COVID, but it is a little bit. Uh, people are flocking to Florida. You know, every bit of data we see shows people are moving into the state. They're visiting the state. Tourism has gone crazy. I feel like it's one of the most underreported stories out there that people are kind of voting with their feet and, and coming to the state. Uh, is that a story you wish would get more attention? And, and could you or can you do anything about that to try to get it more attention? Or what do you think? Well, I mean, obviously, it's it's a great thing. It speaks highly of Governor DeSantis and his policies that so many people from all over the country are choosing to make Florida their home. Um, but we've never like advertised that people need to move here or anything because, you know, we're happy with the people we have, but we always welcome new people, especially if they're coming for the reason that they want 
freedom. They want a normal life for their kids, their families. They want to be able to operate their business without worrying about the government locking them down or fining them or doing mandates or anything like that. That's great. So we've actually gotten a lot of people from blue states who are just so fed up with um, with the COVIDian cult and that whole mentality. Um, and so we're happy, you know, with all these new people. Um, and as far as media coverage of it, again, we know how biased the media is. I don't expect fair coverage of it. I don't expect it to be a story. I almost think though that like, as with big tech, um, as with fact checkers, the more the media just like doubles down on its biases about Florida, doubles down on conspiracy theories, does not correct itself when they're wrong um, or when they're proven wrong, the less Americans trust them and trust in the media is at an all-time low now. It's 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 definitely a minority of Americans who actually trust the media. Most 80-something percent of Americans think journalists make things up on purpose. Hmm. Um, and that cuts across political ideologies. It cuts across the spectrum. 80% think that. So, um, and it's true, obviously. But why do people distrust the media so much? Because of stuff like this. Because they overplay their hand. Because they pretend Florida is this terrifying place where everyone's sick and dying and where the governor's a dictator and like this idiocy you know that they're like putting out there but then you know we see all these lockdown politicians from governor whitmer in michigan to eric swalwell in california they're coming on vacation here so um you know it's it it is fun i wish we would get more coverage of that. Um, just the fact that not only the fact that so many people have moved to Florida, but we were the biggest state in terms of migration inflows. But so so many people have left California that mm -hmm. they ran out of U-Hauls from California. Like, how does that <laughs> even happen? And, you know, not all of them are going to Florida. I know Californians, um, a lot are moving to like Idaho and Colorado and Arizona and more Western places, but we are getting some in Florida as well. Um, and, you know, it's it makes sense though. It's like... I would. I was in Washington D.C. before I moved to Florida, and I would never want to live there now because I don't know when people will go back to normal. I don't know when the city government will go back to normal. Like I just, I wasn't going. It wasn't going to happen anytime soon. I realized so because um, a lot of people in D.C. like they like lockdowns and mask mandates and stuff like that. So I realized either I stay here and adapt to it, or I go back to normal, and that means moving. And I was fortunate that I could do that. So like, yeah, but another thing I think is interesting is, and connected to, to your question, um, is about the restaurant industry and hospitality and tourism. Um, it's been stated, like it's a fact, the media says that COVID ended tourism and harmed the hospitality industry and damaged the travel and all of this stuff, harmed restaurants. Like they've done so much damage. It wasn't COVID. It was the government's response to COVID that did all of that. It was the government's response to COVID that destroyed the hospitality, leisure, restaurant industry in places like New York. Um, if you look at restaurant bookings in January 2019, before anyone knew what COVID was, um, and compare that to this month, January 2022, um, you will see in LA County, it's down like more than 50% restaurant bookings. They've just collapsed. In New York, it's about the same. In DC, it's a little bit worse. Um, in Miami, it's up 14%. So it's not COVID that is ending the restaurant industry and destroying all these businesses. It's not the virus itself. It is 
the government's response to it in certain places. Obviously, the government in Miami and in the state of Florida um, does not do that, does not impose mask mandates or the restrictions that really suppress um, economic activity and make people afraid to go out. So that's why we're doing better than we were in 2019. Tourism in Florida is higher than it was in 2019 pre-pandemic. So that tells you a lot. It's not the virus. It's not COVID. Like the framing is always that it's this or that variant or that it's the virus that caused these problems with the economy. No, it was just, it was the policy response. That's it. Yep, exactly. Uh, you brought up California, which obviously is near and dear to my heart. And I, I know that Governor DeSantis isn't this kind of person, so I'm going to do it for him. But when Gavin Newsom tweeted out, gee, what could go wrong about Florida specifically? It was a New York Times story saying Florida opposing mask and vaccine mandates. And then California has a higher case rate recently right now. So I'm just going to keep tweeting about that over and over again, just as a little, uh, yeah, because <laughs> it just, it was too perfect. And it was so predictable. I literally, you know, I had this bookmark since November and I was just waiting for it. And sure enough. <laughs> Uh, California lost nearly one percent of the entire population in a single year, and here Newsom wow. is, uh, yeah, trying to trying to be sarcastic about this. Uh, anyway, so my last question to you was kind of a more broader sense, and it's a tough one to answer, I know, but I've been kind of asking everybody what their what their thoughts are at the federal level. Do you see policy changing anytime soon? You know, I mean, obviously we've got the same people that kind of led us into lockdowns in the first place are still kind of leading federal COVID policy. And, and so, you know, do you see anything fundamentally changing as far as, you know, CDC guidance or you know, people getting on planes without masks, or do you think it's just going to take an entirely new set of people in, in charge to, to change that policy? Look, I mean, look what happened after nine 11. Um, we had, you know, a couple of bomb threats and bomb scares where people were using supposedly had bombs in their shoes and, you know, this never really panned out, but now 20 years later, like we still take our shoes off to go through airport security everywhere. And it doesn't, it hasn't ever detected a bomb, you know, like this whole thing that we do, but we just do it. Um, it it's like the bureaucracy has been created, the national security bureaucracy for that and TSA and DHS, all of that like stuff. And the bureaucracy is like self-perpetuating. Um, and again, I go back to like my work in former Soviet countries, the entire country is a freaking bureaucracy. So that's how like, you know, everything gets done by corruption, by bribes, by knowing the right people. And like once the bureaucracy is created, it tries to justify its own existence. Right. And so that's what happens with like, you know, the whole industry studying countering violent extremism like this was the big industry now it's countering misinformation now um you know there's a covid bureaucracy there are there's a covid sector like in business like there are so many people making money off of this and so many people who who feel that their existence and their career is justified by covid that that's what i'm worried about just the incentives that have been created um it could be creating to an extent like kind of similar to what we saw after 9-11 with like this never ending, uh, not limiting, unlimited um, security state. But this would be more of like Governor DeSantis calls it the biomedical security state. And so that's what we have to like actively resist it. And that's what we've been doing in Florida. And the more Florida resists and the crazier that things get in places like California or Washington, D.C., um, Florida remains the control group. Anyone can come here and can see we don't have any of that biomedical security state stuff. We're doing totally fine. We're doing, I mean, the same as in California or DC in terms of COVID. Um, and so as long as we exist, 
And as long as we're able to do this, as long as Governor DeSantis is, is governor, Florida is going to be the control group and is going to be proof that none of these biomedical security state policies actually work as they're advertised. Um, and so that's why people like Gavin Newsom love to hate us. That's why the Biden administration, including the president himself, um, likes to talk trash about Florida a lot, unprovoked, mind you. Um, we mind our own business, but he always has something to say um, or his press secretary. And so to answer your question, though, I mean, do we see it changing? Well, I mean, it's hard to say. I think, as I said, there's enough people who who have material interests in this who are very powerful that, you know, I don't think change is going to be easy or swift. One example would be like Washington Post. It's owned by the Amazon CEO, Amazon founder. So it's like Amazon made a lot of money off of the pandemic. Twitter made a lot of money off the pandemic. All these big tech companies did. And so do they want to like give that up? Like lockdowns are really good for their bottom line. And now that they realize people will do it, people will lock down if they're scared enough. Like that's power. And I don't know that the government ever gives up power on its own, except in very rare cases like we have in Florida with our governor, because um, he's, he's a different kind of politician than we see in the federal government right now. Um, so, you know, I think the only way we're going to see a step towards normalcy in, in DC is if in November, um, not only Republicans win, I think everyone will take for granted Republicans win, but it shouldn't only be about party politics. It should be that COVIDians are defeated everywhere. It, whether it's the governor of Idaho, a deep red state, and the guy is a Republican, but he allows mask mandates, or Wyoming, where um, deep red state, again, but a kid was arrested at school for not wearing a mask. Like these politicians there, even if they have R by their name, they have to be held accountable too by the people, by the voters, and they will be, I'm sure. A lot of people have woken up um, in the last couple of years, and I think we will see that. I think we're, we saw it already in Virginia, which went for Biden by 10 points, um, but obviously went for the Republican governor um, who is anti-mandate by 12 points a year later. So we're seeing that pendulum swing. We saw New Jersey even shifted by 12 points. Wasn't enough to get rid of Murphy, but very close. Nobody thought it would be that close. And it's not about anything except COVIDianism and lockdowns and restrictions. And I think that frustration in those places will just continue to grow, particularly when it comes to schools um, and masks on kids. I think that is just a deep, um, it triggers something in people, like once you start messing with their kids and that's that's the line that they should never have crossed, but they, they did and they're doubling down on it. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think, depending on how badly Democrats and COVIDians of all parties get beaten in November, um, maybe we will see a change then, I hope so. <laughs> There's always going to be some part of society that can never go back to normal, though, or doesn't want to. It, it's very depressing. I think you're right. There's a lot of people that have actually kind of enjoyed this, and it's uh, it's hard to believe, but that's the I think that's the case. Uh, so I, you know, I, I, I was a little of the questions I had for you. I just, you know, I wanted to say that many of us, kind of looking from the outside in, are just so grateful for the work that you've done, the governor's done, everybody the administration has done. You know, Florida's become this like beacon of hope for people that are stuck in, in the anti-science areas where, and it's like, you know, the attitude of, well, if Florida exists, thank God. So if I need, if it gets so bad, I have to get out. I have to escape. We can always go there. So. Right. And you. you're always welcome here. <laughs> I, I trust me. It's very tempting. Uh, you know, keep it up. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing. We really appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. It was great talking to you.